they're just clicking and clicking and clicking, and it's them and this content. They're so vulnerable. It is chilling. It horrifies me, the idea of a child being alone, exposed to this content, slowly being dragged into an illness. They are fatal diseases. Dr. Nicholas Cardereth, he is a PhD, LCSWR. He is an expert on addiction involving technology. He is the CEO and founder of Omega Recovery in Austin and Mary Recovery in Hawaii. I call it digital crack. You say it's like digital heroin. What's going on with this? And when did it really kick in, in your opinion, and start changing the way kids are evolving and developing? Well, I think we've been, you know, we've been in the digital age now for the last 10 to 15 to 20 years. And I think, I think one of the problems that happened, Dr. Phil, was that you and I, our generation, sort of, we were asleep at the switch when this new generation of technology came along. We just started with smaller TV sets. And so we conflated modern screen time with TV and most of us grew up on TV. So we let the fox into the chicken coop without really fully appreciating some of these impacts that were different with interactive. And that's the key part. This interactive and immersive media is not our daddy's television from yesteryear where we would sit 10 feet across the room in the living room and we would be um, visual. We weren't participants in the experience. We were observing a TV show. We were watching a TV show. Now we're immersed in it. So that has a different, not only psychodynamic effect, but neurophysiological effect. So the the short sentence that I like to say is that this new technology is brain altering and mind shaping. And, and that's, I would say in the last 10 years, we started seeing the telltale signs of habituation and what looks like addiction. And then what that leads to, what, what is some of, what are some of the byproducts of our love affair with technology in terms of everything from depression and personality disorders and all the rest of it? That is a good short sentence. Say that again, because I want people to hear it and remember that particular sentence. Yeah. So brain altering and mind shaping. So brain altering in the sense that these devices do change the neurophysiology of our brains. And the MRI research has been pretty clear on this in very similar ways to substance addiction. So our brain goes through neurophysiological changes as a result of excessive screen time and mind shaping, meaning that they influence us. So especially our younger folks who are uh, getting involved in certain digital media, social media platforms, uh, everything from social contagion type of things where we're seeing young people. It's not just Kylie Jenner influencing people's values or what matters. It's you have some extremely popular psychiatric influencers who are creating a mimicking effect with everything from borderline personality disorder to dissociative disorder to gender dysphoria. You have a whole host of people mimicking these influencers in the way that you and I, when you and I grew up admiring, you know, I like Michael Jordan growing up, Joe Namath, they were influencers, but they weren't in our pocket 24-7. And so the influencers of yesteryear are not quite the influencers of today and their impact on how they shape people. Yeah, that's for sure. I really want all of our people that are listening or watching right now to stop and think about what you're saying here. All of you that are with us right now, whether you've got kids 
or grandkids, you really need to stop and think about how complicit you may be in contributing to this because the average age that kids are getting smartphones right now is around 12 years old, a little younger, according to the research. And they're spending hours a day on these things. I've got grandkids that one is almost 13, the other is almost 11. And the 13-year-old has a very controlled cell phone, and her parents are paying attention to parental controls and screen time and all that. But still, her friends have them, and who knows you know, how much they're getting on them and what they're doing. It's hard to control. But I want everybody listening to stop and think about this, because this is not just something to chat about with your friends while you're walking on the track or at a cocktail party. This is a big deal. This is changing this generation, and it's changing America's future, and we need to do something about this. China has actually taken some very bold steps in what they're doing in terms of just passing a law. I don't know how they're enforcing it, but they've actually passed a law, as I understand. Is that correct? Yeah, and China and and so China and Korea had been way ahead of the curve in addressing that this was an issue. China had said this was their number one health crisis 10, 12 years ago. And, and there are over 400 treatment centers in South Korea just addressing technology addiction. So they understand the problem. Now, I don't agree with how they're treating it. They, right. they have these sort of militaristic boot camps, and there have been some um, not wonderful things done there. But they're very plugged into the, no pun intended, they're very plugged into the idea that we're too plugged in. Right. Um, I think just to echo the one point that you made, Dr. Phil, we're changing seismically the way our society operates, and we're changing fundamentally the the brain at a pretty fundamental level. And and I think if you look at the psychiatric metrics, right, um, the the younger you are, the more likely are you to be to be more psychiatrically unwell. So if you if we looked at the generational cohort starting with baby boomers and we'll go on down to Gen Xers and millennials and Gen Z. Each decreasingly younger cohort has higher and higher rates of psychiatric distress, higher anxiety levels, depression, suicide, overdose. So before the pandemic in 2019, our young people had the worst psychiatric metrics in recorded history. They had the highest overdose rates, depression rates, ADHD rates. Every way that you can slice and dice and measure psychiatric distress was an all-time high in 2019 pre-pandemic. And then COVID happened. And what we did was we dropped a nuclear bomb on already toxic dynamics. We were more screen dependent, more isolated, more quarantined. So all those numbers spiked throughout that. So we're going through a mental health crisis. And if you have to look at it from 30,000 feet, we have to ask ourselves as a society, well, what's changed in the last 10 to 15 years that might be making our young people more suicidal, more self-loathing, more empty, um, more acting out violently, school shootings, and, and all of those are related issues. And the common denominator is our immersion into this new digital landscape that's changing us. Yeah. And I've had this conversation with people that I know, not necessarily on the air, but people that I know, and they say, look, I understand the pandemic spiked everything, but how can somebody having a smartphone 
create such a mental health crisis. It just doesn't seem that those two things would be so connected. And by the way, the pandemic, I personally think it was hugely mismanaged. I think the quarantine was hugely mismanaged. And it did create an exacerbation. But Mm -hmm. this turn in a negative direction for the mental health of our young people predated that. We really started seeing these increases many years before. We started seeing real upticks in, what, 08, 09, 10. That's when we really started seeing spikes in this. The iPad and the iPhone, right? Yeah. And if you go back, I've said it was like... I don't remember exactly when it was, but around 08 or 09, when the smartphone became really prolific, it was like big cargo planes flew over the United States and just dropped these things on society. Everybody had one. And so, you know, everybody was walking through life with their head up. Now you look, everybody's got their head down looking at their phone. It's a quantum shift. It's a huge, huge shift. So people say, okay, well, how is that changing development? I remember when I was 15, 364 days, 23 hours and 59 minutes, I was down at the DMV to get a driver's license because the second I turned 16, I wanted a driver's license so I could become really mobile. Now, it's like they hardly care. They're watching people live their lives. Instead of living their own lives, they start dating later. They start driving later. They're less accomplished in interpersonal interactions. Right. They're not involved in the world because they're watching it go by on a little screen. And to right. me, that makes us so much less competitive with prior generations and certainly in the world competitive market. I just don't see how this is not going to have terrible consequences, not only for the individual, but for our society. It's slowing everything down. I think it's dampened. It's created a a stunting, dampening effect on adolescence. What you said was exactly right about the driving. So um, lower, lower permit and licensing ages, lower participation in team sports, uh, later dating, less sexual. Uh, Our our teenagers aren't having sex the way that they used to. because the gravitational pull of the digital, the digital crack is makes everything else boring or too much effort requiring. So a lot of the young people that I work in my clinics, they are uninteresting and uninterested. They're flat. There's an emptiness there. Everything they've been so overstimulated by visual digital stimuli, whether it's hardcore pornography or whether it's immersive gaming or whether it's the, the information overload of social media that the real world is just, oh, it's too boring for them. So our challenge is to try to get a young person who's been so desensitized by this new media that's inundating their every every part of their lives to get back into the game, to get back into, uh, uh, you know, where I live in my local community, they couldn't field a varsity football team at the high school for the first time ever really? because there weren't enough teenagers that were willing to put in the footwork and the time that it takes because they were gaming. Um, and they're not dating either because that takes social skills and, and everything else. So I think we're underappreciating quite how it's impacting all of our young people in this really profound way. And, and then the main thing that I think also keep in mind is we're evolutionarily hardwired to be social animals. We need face-to-face 
human interaction. And that was, you know, for obvious reasons, the tribe survived. Our strengths came in our community support of one another, both in the prehistoric times to medieval to the present. And now in the social media age, it was, it was the, the false, you know, the irony of it all is the Kool-Aid that we were all given about something like social media was social media for a social species was supposed to be this elixir. It was going to be like chocolate and peanut butter coming together. It was going to be a match made in heaven. And what we're seeing is that social media is actually anti-social media. It makes people more alone and isolated, and it drives what's called the comparison effect, where you have all these people now comparing themselves to everybody's outsides, to everybody's digitally curated selves, and that makes them feel worse about themselves. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. The first page of a book never tells the full story. And those news alerts and headlines, like the ones we get on our phones, don't even scratch the surface of what the story is really all about. Stories are like people, multi-layered and complex. It takes some digging to find the truth, but when we find it, it can change our world. We like to dig. The news on Merritt Street. Essential television. Imran Ahmed is the founder and CEO of the Center for Countering Digital Hate, CCDH, in the U.S. and in the U.K., and he is an authority on social and psychological malignancies on social media, such as identity-based hate, extremism, disinformation, and conspiracy theories, and this study that has been done is eye-opening, scarily eye-opening. CCDH, set out to test TikTok's algorithm after hearing concerns from parents about what their children are seeing on that platform. Now, this is a nonprofit organization. They say they set up eight new accounts in the U.S., U.K., Canada, and Australia, and they listed the user as 13 years old, the youngest allowed by TikTok. Now, we know there are younger than that that get on TikTok, but they said, we're going to follow the rules that are set forth as though everyone else does, which they don't. And for the experiment, the accounts briefly watched and liked videos about body image and mental health. And we're going to talk about what this study discovered, what it showed, and why I think it's a perfect example of what's happening right now. You've heard me say a million times, you aren't the only voice in your child's ear, so you better be the best voice in your child's ear. That's not happening. So we want that to really go to the front of your priority list. I want to talk a little about you so people know where you come from in your approach to this. Why this field? Why did you focus on this in particular? Why are you focusing on this right now? About six or seven years ago, I was working in politics in the UK, uh, in Parliament, working for a member of Parliament. And we saw two things happening simultaneously. We saw a sudden growth in anti-Semitic, anti-Jewish hatred on the left in the UK. 
And we saw simultaneously, if people may remember, there was a referendum on the European yeah. Union and Brexit in the UK. Right. And my colleague, my friend, Joe Cox, who was a member of parliament, she was a mom of two beautiful kids. And she was um, shot, stabbed and beaten to death by a, a guy who'd been radicalized online with conspiracy theories and lies. And it really opened my eyes that, you know, we'd been getting, in 2016, we were just getting on with our lives. We thought that the that social media was just something online. But what we'd missed was that it was becoming the main place where we shared information, where we negotiated our values as a society, even negotiated what we called facts. And that a lot of, you know, while social media is great because it connects us all, it also connects really bad people to us all. It connects people who are willing to spread lies, hate, disinformation knowingly. Um, and it made us start thinking, well, what else is it changing beyond creating extremism? Is it changing um, our ability to respond to pandemics? Is it changing our ability to respond to, um, to extremism? And is it changing our ability to parent effectively? When you talk about this guy that attacked Joe Cox and took her life so tragically, he was radicalized online. Let's think back before the proliferation of the internet. Somebody could be living out in some rural community in the UK or the US, and they may have these wild theories. They may have these conspiracy theories, but they're pretty isolated. Yeah. But now, being on the internet, those theories get oxygen. And other people that might have even a thread of that, they start interacting and they start feeding off each other and they grow exponentially. What we found was, was, it was exactly that, but there was a disturbing additional fact that we realized that disinformation, that hate, actually gets an advantage on those platforms. Because there, there is no level playing field. In fact, the platforms we realized in, in the way that they present information, they don't give you a timeline. What they give you is a artificially sorted list of content based on how likely it is that you will engage with it. So they are looking for something that the key thing that they look for is engagement. Are people writing back? Are they quoting it? And they found that hatred gets people who, not just people who agree, but people who vehemently disagree, engage with it. So what was happening over time was lots and lots of hate was getting engagement. Tolerant content, normal people who just want to, they want to just live their lives, their voices were being quietly silenced. And in fact, what it was doing was, was amplifying that hatred into billions of news feeds, normalizing those ideas, making it look as though our world is more brittle, more hateful, more full of lies than it was before. And that, over time, has had a really devastating impact on our societies. Yeah. And let's talk about how that's happening, because I think people hear this and they don't realize what's actually happening. I've talked to some people that have broken this down for me. You say those that have some peaceful ideologies, some things that are harmonious, and that doesn't get the heat, the distribution that hatred does, what that means is this algorithm doesn't pick those messages of harmony and tranquility up 
and push them out to as many people as do the hate messages because those hate messages are clickbait. Yeah. And people click on those. And so they spread, they get more clicks, which means there's more advertising dollars and people are outraged by that. And it's like, oh my God, can you believe this? And they click on it and then they send it to someone else and they get outraged and they click on it. And so that spreads while this message here of, hey, have a nice day, doesn't get any heat. There's no emotional charge to it. So it just sits there. It, it's it's exactly that. And what that does over time and, you know, at scale is it makes us look at, so that if the lens through which we look at other people's opinions and at society as a whole, are these platforms, for better or for worse, you know, these platforms have 4.5 billion users around the world. They are incredibly influential on our lives. TikTok, for example, is one platform Two-thirds of American teens use TikTok, two two and three, and they use it on average for 80 minutes a day. That is an unprecedented shift in where we get our information from. And these platforms make the world seem more terrifying, more brittle, more hostile. They make the rest of society seem seem sort of like that, like it's full of enemies. And that that will have an effect on our politics. It'll have an effect on our democracy. Over time, it might make it impossible to sustain democracy because democracy relies on the basic knowledge that we are all in it together. And it's really hard to believe that we're all in it together when social media presents us with fear and hatred constantly. Now, I'll tell you something that I learned in the trial work that I did for years in trial sciences People can say, well, they may see that, but then in the rest of their lives, they realize that's not the case. But something I learned, I would see lawyers that would have some really powerful piece of evidence they were trying to get into the trial, and the judge would not allow it in. And at the end of the day or on a break, the lawyers would look at me and say, we didn't get that in, but the jury knows we had something really powerful that landed on them, that registered on them. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Jurors decide cases based on what they see and hear, not what they don't see and hear. If you didn't get it in, they won't use that in deciding this case three weeks from now. They only use what they see and hear. And what these two out of three kids are seeing and hearing are not the messages of we're all in this together, let's be reasonable, let's be peaceful and supportive. What they're seeing is hate and conspiracy. And all of these things, that's what writes on the slate of who they are. Sure. And look, it's its about having, I, mean, I think it's really important for us to hear lots of opinions. It's really, and obviously, it's vital that everyone has the ability to speak. But the question isn't about freedom of speech. This is about freedom of reach. And who's getting the most reach are the most angry, the most hateful, the, you know, disinformation, lies and hatred have been given the advantage in our society. And that that that's like having a diet that's just full of, you know, one food group. It's not a balanced diet and it will eventually lead to pathologies. It will make you ill. And that that information diet of just fear and hate is making our society ill. And it's not just me saying it. Look around you. Look at what's happening in our societies. These kind of weird, you know, f- the, look, try and try and remember the last Christmas dinner you had. 
and what it's like sitting there with these really entrenched, angry opinions on two sides. It's damaging our ability to form the, the, the consensus, the harmony that's, that's a prerequisite for peaceful, prosperous, loving societies. And it's also having an effect, as we know, on, on our children, on our individual psychology, because kids are the most vulnerable among us. They are forming their minds, they're forming their neurology, even the pathways in their brain. And when you expose them to that kind of environment, well, that's why we carry out studies like we have recently, because the truth is what it's doing is literally killing some of them. Dan Airely, James B. Duke, professor of psychology and behavioral economics at Duke University and a founding member of the Center for Advanced Hindsight. He does research in behavioral economics on the irrational ways people behave described in really plain language. His immersive introduction to irrationality took place as he overcame injuries sustained in an explosion. During a range of treatments in the burn department, he faced a variety of irrational behaviors that were immensely painful, yet persistent. He began researching ways to better deliver painful and unavoidable treatments to patients. Now, Airely became engrossed with the idea that we repeatedly and predictably make the wrong decisions in many aspects of our lives, and that research could help change some of these patterns. From a purely psychological standpoint, it would be psychopathic or narcissistic. People that go on a dating site and they show a picture that was 30 pounds in 10 years ago to attract more males or females, depending on what their target is, they know that this is going to hit the wall because if they do get a hit, they get an attraction, they go to a meeting, they know they're going to be barely recognizable when they show up. So they know it's going to hit a wall that, okay, I can show A and then present B, so I am going to have to come clean. They're going to see the difference. How do they justify that and ignore the fact that they're going to have to pay the piper? They're going to have to come clean eventually. Yeah, so so there are two things that happen. One is that if you had that happen to you, you start believing that other people do it as well. Yeah. Right? So, so he you know, or she's not going to show up looking that way either. <laughs> that's right. So, so that's, that's one of the things about the slippery slope of society. Right? So if, if, if somebody disappointed you with, with their picture, uh, now, now you, you are disappointing. So that's one. The second thing is rationalization. I had one person came to me and said, you know, I, I know I'm, I'm 40, but I really feel like I look 36. So wouldn't it be actually more honest to say 36 because it's a better description exactly. of, of what I am? But, yeah. So that's the second thing. And, and the third one is that people are hopeful that if the other person would only get, give a chance to, to know their real them, they will fall in love with them. And, and that's a, that I think is, a, first of all, it doesn't work. Um, and of course, the gap between expectation and reality is, is off-putting. So people don't give them a, a real chance. But there is this belief uh, for, for some people that the real self is better than the 
observed self from the picture. And and look, it's it's a tough it's a tough world uh, going on online dating. You know, I uh, you know personally, I I look kind of strange, right? So so if I if I had to go on online dating, um, you know, it will be it will be tough. It will be tough. And if all the world sees you. Uh, just based on your picture, like so. So I'm, I'm I'm just talking about myself now, but you know, if if I thought that all the world saw was just my picture, and they judge me based on that, and you know, I had uh, this is more extreme, but you know, I had people who talked slowly to me because they thought I couldn't comprehend. People make all kind of association based on how we look, right? On other things. So so imagine somebody who doesn't look that good. And, and the world of online dating has become more and more about looks. Uh, and now you say, how do, you get, how do I get my other attributes to shine? This platform is not allowing that to come through. Uh, so what they're saying is, let me get them to a meeting. Let me just get them to a meeting and th- they'll see the real me. The problem is that strategy doesn't work. But if I had uh, p- the power... I would change the dating platform. I would try to make the dating platform less about just looks and, and include more attributes and force people to have a slightly deeper process. Because that superficial process, by the way, if you think that looks is the initial screening, it's leaving a lot of wonderful people out there uh, without, without uh, romantic love. Yeah, I get you. With a head like mine, I would still be single if it was all. <laughs> just, I've been bald since I was twelve, so it would. It wasn't exactly. And yeah. I grew up when hair gods were in in the eighties and stuff, seventies and eighties, <laughs> when everybody had big hair, and I was bald. So it would have been tough for me on dating sites back in that day. Yeah, we we actually calculated that. So so we 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 got a lot of data from a, an online dating site. And we could ask the question of what different attributes are worth it, are worth. So for example, I'm 5'9". And I could say, uh, if I wanted to be as attractive as a 5'10 person, uh, somebody who's one inch taller, uh, how much more money would I have to make a year (laughs) to make up for that? And it turns out it's a lot. Oh, really? Oh, it's a lot. It's a lot. It's it's, it's over $20,000. Really? What did you find out about baldness? Uh, I, I don't want to tell you, but it's very, you have to make lots of money to make up for baldness. I'm sorry to tell you. <laughs> I bet it's a lot more than 20000 It's more. It's more but, but, you know, it's, it's not just because people and women are superficial. I mean, we are, but it's not just because of that. It's also because these platforms direct us. We talked about choice architecture. If, if, if a platform asks you, what's the height of your desired person, and you say 5'10", you'll never see a lovely 5'9 person. If you have, you say, I don't want to see bald people, you'll never see somebody who's lovely and, and bald. So the technology is actually redirecting our choices in ways that are not always uh, easy for us to understand and, and understand the consequences uh, of that. So once we understand that, we need to redesign platforms in a better way. Yeah. And again, that's how people don't understand that they can default themselves out of choices, opportunities, where they might miss good experiences, good people, good opportunities, 
by structuring themselves out, they might miss me because I'm bald, but they would also miss Dwayne Johnson, the rock, you know, mm-hmm. he's bald too. And they say, Oh my God, you know, here's one of the most handsome movie stars in the world because they have something prefixed in their mind. James McGibney is a cyber security expert who has made it his mission to use his skills to help people victimized by revenge porn, for one thing. In cybersecurity, when you say hacked, what do you mean? Yeah, it's a good question. So basically, uh, a hacker is trying to get into our secure environment, and they're trying to get into our networks, our servers, and our job is to keep them out. But they're coming in for a specific reason, and it's nine out of ten times it's financial They want to hack your systems. They want to get into your environment. They want to learn your environment. And then they want to make that financial move to get money out of your account out onto the Bitcoin platform. You and I have worked with some of the average everyday citizen who's not a multi-billion dollar company, but yet they get hacked. I know this because I have friends where it's obvious someone has gotten into their contacts and they start sending messages that look like they're coming from my friend. Yeah, email's being spoofed. And they're coming to me, and I know they're not from them because as soon as I read, I think this is not his vernacular, this is not his syntax. I can tell from looking at it that this is not him, but it says it's coming from him. Right. What is the interest in getting into somebody's contacts? And is that how far they usually get? Yeah. So it all starts with the the human element that's hacking more than anything else is they target one person. So let's say that they target you and they hack your account, they hack your email account, and they look at your sent emails and they look at your address book and they export, they take your entire address book that you have in email and Outlook, for example. Right. And now they have all of your contacts. And then from there, they're going to start reaching out to every one of them saying that they're Dr. Phil. Uh, but for the average person, when they get that email, it's something like, like we saw earlier today on the show about, you know, I need money right away. I, I'm in the hospital. I've been in an accident, whatever it may be. And that's how the hackers start. So they have this huge base to work with, with yours as ground zero. So let's say I get an email from Bobby X. Yeah. And it's not Bobby X because somebody's gotten into his contacts and sends it to me. If I respond to it, does that give them any access to me? And that's a great question because it depends. So a couple of things happen right there when you respond. Now they have verified that your email address is legitimate. That's for starters. Now what they might do a couple emails later when they respond to you is have a link to something. Hey, I need you to check this out real quick. Would you mind? It's when you click on that link that the real trouble begins because two things will happen. One, most likely you get rerouted to another website that'll ask for your username and password. And you'll think, oh, I just got locked out of my email. I got I logged out. I got to log back in. And a lot of people will log back in. Or what's even worse, when you click on that link, someone now has access to your machine. A very good hacker, once you click on that link, there's a lot of things I now know about you and that machine that I'm getting ready to hack. Okay. So- if we get a link, somebody sends us a link, and we don't know this person, yeah. and we don't recognize the link, we obviously should not click yeah. on it. You should delete the email. But if you are curious, one thing you can do is you hover your mouse, your pointer of your mouse, uh, onto the link. And when you do that and you don't click on it, you just hover over it, it'll actually show you the link it's actually going to. 
So if it says Microsoft.com, but when you hover over it, it's a completely different link, then you know that it's fake. Okay. Now, if we get links and they say HTTP colon, and then there's an address, that's different from if it has an address that says HTTPS colon. And that S is significant, right? Yeah, it's SSL. It's the security. It's saying that that site is secure. It has a certificate. I don't want to sound like too much of a nerd here, but uh, basically it is verifying that that site with the S is a secure site. It is far more secure than the HTTP without the S. Okay, so just as a simple rule, if people look for that S, if they have any question at all, if they look for that S, That'll save them trouble a lot of times. A lot, not always, but yeah, a lot of times. A really good hacker will even still use the S, yeah, you know, just for that. But it's you're right for the most part. Yeah, that's not a get out of jail free card, exactly. But that saves them trouble. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Okay, now if somebody gets into somebody's contacts, how do they get in there? So they're in an Outlook, for example. Every time you have a save a contact on your phone, if it syncs with Outlook, that contact is now in your email. But furthermore, if you didn't have any contacts, the hacker will just go to your sent folder and they'll just export every sent email you have ever sent to any person and they'll export the addresses that way. Well, but how do they get in there though? It depends on how you were hacked. So if someone, if you clicked on that link there, we mentioned earlier, if you click on that link or if someone actually, if you put in your username and password after you clicked on that link, now someone has access to your account so they can log into your account And a lot of times, unless you have two-step authentication in place, I'll get to that in a minute, but uh, unless you have two-step authentication in place, you wouldn't know that someone just logged into your account. There's no way you would know unless you looked at a log, for example, which most people wouldn't do. So a lot of this could be done and you would have no idea that the hacker was even there in the first place. From a forensic, forensic digital footprint perspective, a good hacker won't leave one. Okay. So Bobby X is just sitting out there. And all of a sudden, somebody's into his contacts. Yeah. My question is, how did they get there to begin with? How did they get into him? How did they get to Bobby? Yeah. Was yeah. it through somebody else? A lot of times, it's hard to tell what the root cause, who was the first hack in that chain of hacks. Uh, a lot of times, you never find out. The hacker will be the only one that knows who was first. So Bobby X could have been the first person that was hacked. He could have been the one that clicked on the link, or it could have been downstream. But somebody has to click on a link Somebody got hacked somewhere. Someone put in their credentials where they shouldn't have put them in. Someone was absolutely hacked. But in order to be hacked, somebody has to enable the hacker. You're right. There's a human intervention that occurs uh, for someone to be able to hack in some instances. Now, there's the other side of the fence of a hacker will go on the dark web and they won't have to hack you at all. You know, maybe your credentials were logged, were, you know, put out there from another Verizon or Microsoft. Something else was hacked that had your username and password. They go on the dark web, they see that username and password, and they assume that you use that password for all of your accounts. A lot of people do that. They use the same password for 20, 30 different accounts, their banking accounts, their email accounts, and the hacker knows that. So even if I don't have your bank or your email password, I might have it from your LinkedIn profile, for example, and I'll just assume that you use the same password and I'll try and get in that route. So people shouldn't use the same passwords. No. But how do they remember all those passwords? 
Yeah, and there's a new app. There's Microsoft Authenticator where you don't even really need a password anymore. It's part of the two-step authentication. But I always tell people, if you insist on keeping passwords separate for you know each account, you should put that on a spreadsheet and you should put that spreadsheet in your safe and keep it in your safe. And if that spreadsheet is still sitting on your computer, you delete that spreadsheet. A lot of people will do it by hand, but that is the safest way to make sure that you don't lose your passwords. Never have them online. Well, that's not handy. It's not. <laughs> yeah, it takes it takes time and it's a it's a pain, but it's you know, there's so many ways people are trying to get you on the internet these days. So you want to do anything you possibly can to try and prevent that with the thought being even if one of your accounts was compromised, at least the other 24 aren't. And then you can immediately go and change passwords for everything just to play it real safe. But once you do that, if you've got 10 televisions, you got to log in 10 times. So for the televisions, because those are connected to the wireless network for updates and things like that, um, that would be a little bit different than just your actual everyday accounts. Like, I mean, but, I've got yeah. Netflix on my iPad, a Netflix app. Yeah. I've got Netflix on my TV at home. Yeah. So if I change it on here, I got to then go change it at home yeah. too. Yeah, that is true. If That's a cash, full-time job. Every three months, I always recommend every 90 days that you change your passwords. Really? Yeah. And I know it's it's such a pain and I completely am sympathetic towards it. But, uh, you know, it's a lesson you learn once. You know, it might seem like, Ugh, I can't believe I have to do this every three months. If you get hacked one time, especially if you have a big financial loss, you will definitely start being more cautious. And then what's this authenticator you're talking about where you don't have to have the password? So they have, you know, authenticator apps where you don't, it's passwordless. And you basically get, it's the equivalent of a two-step authentication. You get a notification on your you know, phone saying, hey, is this you trying to log in? And if you say, yep, that's me, you're in. It's a, it's a changing environment. You know, a lot of companies are going to a passwordless environment just for the reasons we're discussing right now. Or just like we saw on the show today. Well, maybe that's what I should do. Yeah, I could help you with that. I have a lot of different accounts yeah, and yeah. apps and stuff like that. Yeah, so this yeah. is a new iPad, and they tell I mean, me it's... I'd probably a good portion of your life is on that iPad. Yeah, probably so. Yeah. There's way more power in here than we had for the moonshot. Yeah. Right? You could yeah. do the moonshot with this. Basically, yeah. You could control a multi-billion dollar company with an iPad. Is this a good thing? Is the internet a net positive in your opinion? You know, uh, I always joke around and say, if I had the power to burn down the internet, I would. Uh, I, I feel that, it, but it's just, I'm extremely jaded because of the business that I'm in. My job revolves around bad guys all day, every day, and watching them use the internet for the worst possible purposes imaginable. But there's other people who have very pleasant experiences on the internet. They run small businesses off of the internet and they have no problems, but I do see quite an uptick in even the amount of businesses that are getting harassed by customers and it's online and you get bad reviews online and you want to get those reviews removed and then you find out it's a competitor who's doing this to you and they're doing it online and they're sabotaging your entire business and they're doing it from the comfort of their own home on an iPad probably. <laughs> 